Thanks again to Pixie and the Party Grass Boys for starting off this episode of Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast presented by High West Distillery. I'm your host, Tom Kelly, and I've already kicked off my own ski season with some amazing top-to-bottom runs at Alta. It's official. The ski season is underway in Utah with plenty of early season snowfall. A big thanks to Last Chair sponsor High West Distillery in Park City, one of my favorite hangouts in Old Town. In this episode of Last Chair, we'll connect with a young woman who truly lives a life of adventure 12 months a year on snow. Nikki Champion grew up ski racing in the small hills of Michigan, chasing gates and yearning for the mountains of the West. She came to Utah via stops in Colorado, Montana, and Alaska, becoming an avalanche forecaster and a snow science expert. In the summer, you can find her guiding on Denali in Alaska or Mount Rainier in Washington State. But she's found a real home here in the Wasatch Mountains as a forecaster with the Utah Avalanche Center. Get ready for adventure as we dive into the interview with Nikki Champion. And joining me now is Avalanche forecaster Nikki Champion coming to us from Salt Lake City today. And Nikki, welcome to Last Chair presented by High West. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. So what have you been up to? I know you just moved back down to Salt Lake City for the winter and you're greeted with all of this new snow. Yeah, I got back probably early, mid-October. And early season, we just do a lot of kind of organizing, education, getting things laid out for what we expect is going to be a pretty busy winter. So we had USAW the first week of November, and now we're kind of starting to roll into forecasting. And what is USAW? So USAW is the Utah Snow and Avalanche Workshop. We run both a pro session that has talks and presentations uh, directed towards professional users. And then we ran three open sessions or three open nights that have talks and presentations of different themes that are directed just towards all backcountry users. Now, I know that you're very professional in that, but are people getting like really pumped up for the ski season this year? It sure seems like it. Uh, I've been out three days so far this year and almost every single day, the Alta parking lot looks like the lifts are running. Um, and we had record showing at USAW. We had uh, close to a thousand people on for each open night, which is awesome. Well, we're going to talk more about skiing and your role with the Utah Avalanche Center. But first, I want to go to what you do in the summertime. And it's amazing to me. And I know there's there's a number of people who do a routine like this, uh, climbing and guiding in the summertime and then get on snow in the winter. Uh, but you've now worked up at Mount Rainier for a few years. And how, how did you uh, make your way up there? And what is your role as a mountain guide for RMI? Yeah, so I'm going on my sixth season with RMI. I used to work up in Alaska uh, seven years ago. I worked as a guide up there doing some mellow ice climbing, glacier travel, things like that. And uh, seven years ago was the first time I came down to the lower 48 and I, I climbed Mount Rainier for the first time. And while I was there, I saw all the guides climbing and I was like, that looks pretty fun. I think I could do that. So the next season I applied and I got the gig and yeah so now I've entered the rotation in which I spend every May through October climbing primarily in the Pacific Northwest in Alaska so our normal rotation looks like a May on Rainier a June on Denali July and August back on Rainier and in the North Cascades and then often September doing a lot of North Cascades work until I wrap up and now head back to Utah. 
to give people a sense of what this is like, how much of that is actually on snow in the summertime and how much of it is just bare rock? It's almost, well, it depends what mountain I'm climbing. I do a lot of primarily snow and glacier traveled guiding. So Rainier's almost all rock or almost all snow. There's about a thousand feet of rock end season, but it's third, fourth class. You're, you're walking it using your hands occasionally. Denali's all snow. Um, from the second you get off the airplane and you land on the glacier, uh, you don't see any rock or land for the next 21 days. The North Cascades, what I do in later season, that does have a little bit more rock, but still probably only a third. In, in Nikki Champion's year, how many months are you touching snow? <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, probably 12 months a year. That's amazing. Sometimes I, <laughs> I try to take October off and warm up. And previously, I would try to kind of take some time in May off and go somewhere tropical and only wear sandals for a month or so, give my feet a break from the ski boots and the mountaineering boots. But somehow snow still seems to sneak into every month of my life. We're going to talk about COVID as it relates to the backcountry, but I'm just wondering how did the pandemic impact your guiding programs this past summer? Yeah, the guiding industry seemed to be hit pretty hard by COVID this year. Um, like I said, normally I head over to Washington in May, do a month there climbing and getting acclimated, getting all my systems back into place. And then June, uh, I head up to Alaska and do a Denali every time, uh, time of year then. This year, the whole climbing season got canceled on Denali um, for guide services as well as public climbers. So we were unable to do uh, a season up there. And I was actually unable to climb on Rainier until uh, September this year. So a much different summer for me. Did you put, I'm, I'm sure the guide services had uh, protocols in place, uh, would be a distancing masks or whatever. Uh, did did that make it any more difficult in conducting those programs? When we did actually start running programs late season, uh, we ran a lot lower ratios. So about two clients to one guide versus our normal three clients to one guide. Um, we put every client in their own tent. When it came to social distancing and like wearing masks, luckily um, we already do that. When you're traveling on a rope team, you're about 30 feet away from somebody already. And most of us are wearing buffs and gloves in the Alpine. For some of the lower altitude things like that down at base camp and learning our skills, we did have to wear masks and be more socially distant, but it was pretty easy to implement. We just had lower numbers. One of the side benefits, uh, not only do you have the middle seat blocked on airplanes, but you get a private tent now on guiding adventures, right? Yeah, you know, it was kind of hard to deal with. All of a sudden we went from, we normally put all of our clients in a public shelter, which is like a permanent structure at Camp Muir. Now all of a sudden we had 12 tents we had to maintain. And these aren't little one person tents. These are big Denali, like three person tents. And so this year, one of my programs, we had these 12 tents up on the Muir Ridge, which is the camp on Mount Rainier. It's notorious for being terribly windy. And so we were starting to climb around 1 a.m. And one of my co-workers walks over to me and he's like we just lost a tent and I was like what do you mean and he's like a tent just blew off the ridge and this was like five minutes before we're supposed to start climbing Mount Rainier and the added uh, maintenance of 12 tents made things a little bit hard and we we had some tents so uh, blow off Mount Rainier. 
Well, the stories that come out of these challenges. Now, Nikki, you have a really adventurous life. I mean, you're on snow 11, 12 months a year. It started all in Michigan, of all places. And how did you get into skiing to start with and find this sense of adventure in Michigan? Yeah, so I was pretty fortunate. I was actually born back in Colorado um, in like the Denver, in between Denver and Steamboat. Uh, my parents got me onto skis when I was about like one and a half or two. Uh, they had me like skiing with a, like a hula hoop out front of them so I could hold on to it. Uh, so I started skiing really young, which I thank my parents for. And then I, I began alpine racing uh, really young as well, which drove me all over the state of Michigan and uh, out west as well to train. So it kind of came as no surprise to anyone that when I started looking at colleges when I was 18, I was looking for somewhere uh, out west, uh, ideally Colorado or Montana, somewhere that had the mountains. Did you have, or actually what age were you when you moved to Michigan from Colorado? I think I was about four. So I was pretty young, but I had begun uh, skiing already. And, but you had those memories of mountains still in your mind? I don't know if I actually had memories or uh, if it was just kind of ingrained at that point. Now, I know you raced all over the Midwest and out West as, as well. Uh, your home mountain was Timber Ridge in Michigan. And give people a sense of uh, what the ski areas are like. And by the way, I'm from Wisconsin, so I know, I, know, I know the routine. Skiing is just as much fun back there, but it's different. Give us a little sense of what the hills were like back there. <laughs> Yeah, so the hill I grew up racing on maybe had maybe had 300 vertical feet. Um, there was a pommel lift that still existed, as well as just true tow ropes. And then the race hill had just uh, two doubles that ran side by side. And then there was a triple somewhere else on the hill. And, and that was it. Uh, you had your one black diamond, your like three blue runs, and then uh, kind of the scatter of green throughout. And not much avalanche danger back there, was there? Yeah, not much avalanche danger, more like danger of blue ice or getting smoked by somebody uh, for the first time. <laughs> yeah, but you know, those hard pack conditions, man, they make a good skier out of you, don't they? They, they, yeah, they've lingered. I know how to turn. So, so the mountains were calling you and beckoning you to come back. How did you make that transition from Michigan to get back out to the Rocky Mountains? Yeah, so I, like I said, I kind of knew when I was looking at colleges that I wanted to be somewhere out west. Um, and I knew I was trying to go to school for engineering. So I ended up picking uh, a school that had both. I went to Colorado School of Mines in Golden which was right in the foothills, kind of outside the Denver area. It seemed like the logical choice to allow me to pursue engineering as well as get to play in the mountains. So what were you thinking of doing with your engineering degree? Well, initially I wanted to do an environmental engineering degree, uh, just pure engineering. Uh, I went to Mines because they had what was called the humanitarian engineering program. So you focused on helping developing nations uh, with their engineering infrastructure. Somewhere along the line, like a lot of people go to school in Colorado or in Utah, uh, you started to find that skiing was a pretty cool thing, huh? <laughs> yeah. So when I got to Colorado School of Mines, I um, needed a work study and I landed at the outdoor recreation center of the school. It seemed like a logical choice. They did everything I enjoyed. They spent time outside, they climbed, um, and more importantly, they introduced me to backcountry skiing. So it was my freshman year. I took my first 
avalanche course and then began helping shadow some really introductory uh, backcountry skiing trips, like going to a hut trip that didn't really have any avalanche terrain, but started helping people travel through avalanche terrain. And I had a mentor there who was a civil engineer and was really into snow science. So I started spending a little bit of time with him there and in snow pits and seeing how snow science was closely related to engineering. Yeah. I remember when I was a little kid in Wisconsin, uh, we would that's when we got a lot of snow, but we would dig pits and we would dig and build these igloos, not really thinking of, you know, the science aspect of it. But when you're out there and, and digging a snow pit for avalanche forecasting, it's quite a different science, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Yeah. You're a, you're a little bit more observant of what's actually happening versus just moving the snow. So you moved from Colorado up to Montana, and then things really started to move for you in snow science and uh, avalanche uh, safety. Yeah, so I did a couple years at Colorado School of Mines. Uh, it wasn't a great fit for me at the time, so I ended up uh, transferring up to Montana State. It was my first semester there. I had taken my avalanche level two by that point, so when I got to Montana, I was connected with a grad student who was just looking for field assistance, people who had some pretty basic snow science understanding, but people who just wanted to get out in the snow and learn some more. So I started spending time with him. Uh, I dug so many snow pits, just digging holes for him. And he was doing some propagation saw research. And that's how I initially got connected with the snow science community there. For those who don't know, Talk a little bit more about the propagation saw research. Yeah, so the propagation saw test is just another, we call them stability tests in the snow science world. It's just a test that you're doing on the snow to uh, test the stability of the snowpack. You're seeing if that uh, slab on top of that weak layer uh, does propagate. And how do you mean propagate? So propagate, uh, when it collapses, instead of just collapsing, um, you know, like when you're standing on top of the snow and you feel it collapse beneath you, it actually cracks um, like in a planar motion and it shoots out and causes a fracture in the entire block that you've isolated, um, which is kind of what uh, causes avalanches in general. Um, if you're just getting a collapse in the snowpack, it's concerning, but when you get it to collapse and then continue to propagate out, that's when you can see those really notable avalanches in films and such where they, it like shoots out from people's feet. Had you at this point experienced avalanches yourself? Had you been in one or been on an outing where one occurred so you had a firsthand knowledge of it? Uh, at that point I had not and uh, luckily enough I have still never uh, been in an avalanche myself. That's a really good thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to try to keep it that way. So this eventually led you up to Alaska. And, you know, what was the motivation, you know, finding new opportunities, different mountains? Uh, what was the incentive for you to start to move around to different places? Yeah, so after I, like, worked with a grad student, I kind of finally stumbled into finding out how that snow science was something that I wanted to, like, further pursue. Um, I started teaching avalanche classes down in Montana, I began doing my own research um, outside of just helping field assistants, and I started working in the Sub-Zero Science and Engineering Lab in Bozeman as well, uh, which is like a cold lab that you get to create snow. And I did that post-graduation, but after I actually graduated, I, I wanted to start 
exploring more options uh, for forecasting and even more uh, seeking out new mentorship opportunities. And the Chugach uh, was a really unique situation in which it had uh, three female forecasters. It was the only forecast center in the country that had that. So I wanted to go up to the Chugach. I was fortunate enough to land uh, the internship up there. Uh, so I headed up there. Did that experience introduce you to new things that you hadn't encountered down in the lower 48? Yeah, it had. One, it, it was new opportunities. It was a new, uh, I hadn't worked directly with a uh, forest service on the forecasting side of things before. I had worked primarily as an avalanche educator with the uh, forest service avalanche center as well. It was a, it was a new type of snowpack. So uh, the Chugach up in Alaska, that's in Gerwood, uh, you know, an hour outside of Anchorage, for those who don't know. It's a really unique snow climate in which it can represent all three of what we've identified as snow climates. So uh, the inner mountain, which is what we are here in Utah, continental, which is more kind of what you think of Colorado, and then a coastal snow climate, which is, you know, traditionally Washington. And the Chugach year to year has represented all three. So I was able to see a lot more rain than I'd ever seen before uh, down in Montana and or in Utah or Colorado, um, as well as different problems like glide avalanches and also just not seeing as much sun that plays an impact on the snow. We're with Nikki Champion from the Utah Avalanche Center on Ski Utah's Last Chair presented by High West. We'll be right back after this short break. I spent a lot of days at Deer Valley Resort, and one of my go-to stops in the mountain is Stein Erickson Lodge. After a morning of skiing Empire and Flagstaff, I'll head back via the Viking Lift, which drops me right at the deck door. Stein's is Utah's only Forbes five-star hotel and spa, with a world-renowned culinary team led by Chef Zane Holmquist. When you're skiing Deer Valley this winter, make a reservation in the Glitterin restaurant for Stein's popular skier's lunch or the Sunday brunch, both now serving family style. For me personally, I always visit the lobby and admire Stein's amazing trophies, including his Olympic medals. It's a comfortable vibe for everyone, whether you're a lodge guest or just spending a day on the slopes at Deer Valley. Everyone's welcome at Stein's. Insider's tip for you, try Stein's Wild Game Chili. Stein Erickson Lodge is located in Silver Lake Village, a great spot for lunch or opera ski. Now let's get back to Nikki Champion of the Utah Avalanche Center as she walks us through some safety tips in the backcountry. Welcome back to Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast presented by High West. And Nikki Champion, thanks for joining us here today. I want to talk a little bit more about snow science. And as a skier, and I think I'm like a, a lot of skiers and snowboarders out there, we love to go out get in the powder, get that snow, particularly here in Utah, that's just blowing up over our hips and into our faces. And probably the last thing that we think about when we're going down those runs is science. But for us to be safe, we really do need to know about the science of snow and how it sticks together, how it breaks apart. Can you give us just a little introduction to what snow science is about and, and some of the things that I know in this short podcast, we're not going to cover them all, but just give us a little introduction to get people to think a little bit differently about the science that binds these snowflakes together. Yeah, snow science is, is a really fickle science and we're, something we're continuing to learn about. It feels like every single day. Um, the basics of what builds 
an avalanche though is you have a slab or a really strong layer over a weak layer on some side of bed surface that it can slide on and then you need a slope steeper than 30 degrees so to break that all down into kind of layman's terms a slab or a really firm layer that can be a lot of things that can be a ton of new snow that came in really warm or wet that can be when the winds are really high where it's blowing it around and it's creating that really firm snow that we've all seen um, if you've been to a ski resort on a windy day uh, that can also just be a recently solar introduced layer that has become firm because of the sun and increased temperatures a weak layer that often is known as it often is a faceted layer and what a faceted layer is it's a layer of angular snow grains um, uh, that sounds confusing on paper but we've all seen these angular snow grains uh, it's when you try to make a snowball and they won't bind together at all those are angular snow grains how those form is a big temperature gradient on a shallow amount of snow or really really cold temperatures and not much snow uh, that'll drive faceting or cause the snow to become weak. Other things that can be these weak layers underneath the slab could be uh, grapple. You know, when you get all those little tiny pellets that look more like little round BBs than they do those beautiful snowflakes or stellars that we see. It can also be surface hoar, which is just frozen frost. When you go out and you see those really beautiful feathers on the snow surface, um, that layer can get buried and become a weak layer. Or it could just be a density change, um, which means when the snow comes in really cold, it's light and fluffy, and then it gets warmer throughout the storm. So you end up having that warm, wet snow on top of that light, low-density snow. And then I said it needs to be on a bed surface. That can just be more snow. That can be the ground. That can be an ice layer. And then you need a slope angle steeper than 30 degrees. So if you're on terrain that's less steep than 30 degrees, um, you're not an avalanche terrain at all. So you can kind of forget about all of the snow science and just enjoy your day every day of the year. But if you're on a slope steeper than 30 degrees, you do need to think a little bit about this makeup of an avalanche. Nikki, I wanna talk a little bit about the difference between skiing in a resort and skiing outside of a resort. And I know like many, you're at a resort, you're at Alta or Snowbird or Powder Mountain, wherever it might be. And you're anxious to get into that new powder, that fresh stuff. It's right there. Why can't we ski it? Patrols do an amazing job at mitigating those risks. So can you first talk about what happens inbounds at resorts to mitigate the avalanche challenges? And then we'll move on to outside of the resorts. Ski resorts do an awesome job at mitigating the risk. And what they do is they more or less create their own snowpack. So these layers that I just talked about, that slab and that weak layer, they use explosives, they use ski cutting, they use a multitude of different uh, techniques to really destroy or test those weak layers and they create an artificial snowpack. They make sure that that weak layer or that um, whole setup doesn't exist within their ski resort. Now, as soon as you step outside a gate uh, you enter the backcountry from a trailhead. It's all the same. It's a natural snowpack. And at that point, there's none of that control. There's no explosive works testing the snow. There's no explosive work destroying that weak layer. Um, it's all just a natural raw snowpack. And you more than likely do have that makeup of a slab and a weak layer. 
So when we're out skiing at the resorts and we're up on the top of 9990 or up at the top of Solitude or at Altair and Snowbird and there's a gate, we need to think differently, don't we? Yeah, as soon as you leave the gate, you are no longer in the ski resort and you need to think of it as the backcountry. Um, there's not really anything known as the side country. As soon as you leave the gate, you're in the backcountry. It's the exact same as leaving a trailhead. So I want to get a little more sense of what you do as a forecaster. And I know that some of your days are spent in the office uh, calculating out forecasts and some are spent in the field. Let's talk about a day in the office where you're building a forecast and and the time frames involved and what services ultimately you at Utah Avalanche Center are offering to the skiers and riders here in, in Utah. Yeah, so my normal forecasting day Normally, it looks like us going into the National Weather Service around 4 a.m. in the morning. Uh, between 4 and 5 a.m., you're looking at every weather station for your forecast region. So for me, that's Salt Lake, Provo, and the Ogden Area Mountains. I also am fortunate enough to be able to talk to the meteorologists at the National Weather Service and pick their brain if there's something really interesting happening or get an idea of the actual precip totals and what that's going to look like for the Wasatch. At 5 a.m., uh, we record our Dawn Patrol hotline, which is for everybody that's heading out before work. It's not going to be a full forecast, but it is going to give people a general idea of what to look for that day, what weather looks like, and any pertinent recent avalanches, things along those lines, as well as closures. We want to keep people in the loop for that. We also, around that time, communicate with the ski resorts and guide services see what and DOT and see what's going on in their end early in the morning because they're also up doing a very similar forecast for their region. And it's, it really helps to pick their brains. And then between 5 a.m. and 7 a.m., we spend that time just writing. Um, so we're writing three full products, um, trying to assign a danger rating as well as the problems, um, the wind loading, the new snow, persistent weak layer, whatever the avalanche problem is for the day and assign a danger rating and put out a bottom line statement and get that all published by 7 a.m. Uh, once we push publish, we send out a email to everybody who's subscribed to our email list, which makes it a really convenient part of people's morning that they can just get that email right in their inbox, get the forecast right there. They don't even have to go to our website. And then at 7 a.m. we also record a second hotline for all three regions, which is a full reading of our forecast. So if people prefer to listen to it while they're either driving to the canyons or driving to work, they can do that. At 8.03, we talk to KPCW and do a quick blurb on what the avalanche forecast looks like for the day. And then around 8.07, we can finally uh, take a deep breath for the morning. Do you have breakfast in there anywhere? Uh, not really. Um, some people do. I, I do a lot of uh, beverages uh, at that time. I do like tea and coffee and water. And by eight, I'm probably drinking a sparkling water as well. So I normally grab coffee or breakfast once I wrap up all my forecasting. I'm not that hungry at 3 a.m. For those of us grabbing a forecast in the morning, what are some of the simple things we need to look for? If we're using the mobile app or going to the website or looking at your email, what are some simple tools we can look at in that forecast? So right away, you're going to see our uh, danger rows, which has these danger ratings that I just talked about assigned to the different aspects and elevations of the Wasatch. That right away is going to give you a really simple um, breakdown of the dangers at those different aspects and elevations in a very visual way. Going with the danger rows is just our bottom line statement. 
It's normally a couple sentences that are just going to break it down really simply on what the avalanche danger is, why and where. From there, it's really important to continue reading through the rest of the forecast. I think two more really valuable sections before we get to the actual avalanche problems is looking at the weather and looking at recent avalanche activity because I think both of those paint a pretty valuable story about either what's going to happen in the mountains or what is happening in the mountains. Nikki, how do you learn about the avalanche activity? Are, are you getting user reports from the backcountry? Yeah, so we get observations directly from users. Uh, anybody can go to utahavalanchecenter.org, click on our observations tab, and they can view all the observations from the public, but they can also submit an observation themselves from just a general day in the field, or they can submit uh, if they do have avalanche uh, incident. And we rely super heavily on those. Uh, we don't have enough forecasters to get to every zone every single day. So the user observations really help us paint a full picture of the Wasatch. Nikki, that's the work that's done when you're in the office. But now let's go out on the field. When you're doing a field day, what are some of the activities you're, that are taking place? So even before I can go into the office and write that forecast, uh, what's more important is what happens in the field and what we see in the field, um, because we have our own personal observations on top of the user observations. So most of us try to get into the field three or so days, and then we're forecasting, say, two. And what we're looking for on those field days is we try to go somewhere that either one of our forecasters hasn't been recently, there haven't been many observations from, somewhere that we think there could be like an outlier issue or somewhere that there's been a recent avalanche. Uh, when we're in the field, dependent on the reason we went, we're digging some of those snow pits, doing some of those stability tests to see the stability of the snow. And if there was a recent avalanche, we're trying to go look at the crown, kind of get an idea of why it happened, what layer it happened on, and if it could happen again. Nikki, you made a decision along the way to go to Alaska in part because there were some female forecasters up there. How important has that been for you uh, as a woman in the forecasting field to have mentors like that? Yeah, I feel like I've been really fortunate along my whole path to have some really great mentors, both male and female. I just felt in my own personal progression, I had to actively uh, seek out female mentors a lot more. They were harder to find, and that's why I wanted to go up to Alaska and work with all the women up there. When I got down to Utah and I took the position down here, the woman who was in this position before me, Evelyn, had started an all-female women's avalanche education program. Uh, and I think that's huge for the reasons I just discussed. I think that by introducing more female-specific education, it creates more opportunities for women to see other women in leadership positions, in educator positions, in forecaster positions, and then also create more mentor-mentee relationships. I think as we just start introducing more women into the avalanche education and the avalanche world, we're going to start seeing more women continuing down their own personal path. Nikki, you yourself are becoming the role model now for others. Is that a role that, that you're embracing yourself and trying to bring others into the field that has brought you so much uh, uh, excitement and accomplishment? It is. Like I said, I think women's education is a first huge stepping stone. Uh, this year we went from about three women-specific 
education to uh, seven courses we're doing this year. And I'm involved with all of those as well. I, I do find that most of my partners I go out with are female. Um, I go out with all of my coworkers and they're great, uh, but I do uh, for my personal field days really enjoy going out with women. And I would like to see more women enter these entry level avalanche education courses, maybe feel more confident to then continue their own avalanche path, start taking some of the farther along avalanche education courses, and then maybe pursue a career in avalanche or snow science. Let's look at the situation today, uh, partly because of the pandemic, but actually even before the pandemic, the sales of backcountry gear were absolutely skyrocketing in the last few years. We saw it this past spring after the lifts closed in March that more and more people were hitting the backcountry and we're already seeing it this year. What are you anticipating in the Utah backcountry this winter. Will we see this real influx of new people into backcountry skiing? I think we will. I think that we're gonna have a lot of new users in the backcountry and maybe non-traditional users, people that normally would spend their winters just in a ski resort. But with the prospect of ski resorts closing or the uncertainty, I think we're gonna have a lot more people pushed into the backcountry. I mean, last year, when the ski resorts closed, we had about 100 human-triggered avalanches reported, um, and that was just during COVID. So I think we're, we saw more people enter the backcountry last spring, and I think we're going to continue to see more people entering the backcountry this upcoming season. So I've just purchased backcountry gear. I am ready to go. What's my first step? What should I – what's the initial – element that I should look at for my pathway to learning how to go into the backcountry safely. So you did the first step. The first step is getting the gear um, that doesn't only include gear to travel uphill, but that includes avalanche rescue gear as well. So your beacon shovel probe, all three are essential pieces. You can't use one without the other. Um, after that, you need to get the training. And this is a really unique year because I think there's a lot of resources available for people. Uh, we had an e-learning module go live on uh, knowbeforeyougo.org, which is a just an online learning module that you can work through from the comfort of your own home. There's going to be a lot of free live Know Before You Go one-hour lectures. Uh, beyond that, I think getting on the snow is really important. Um, the first stepping stone for that could be just in Backcountry 101, which is an evening lecture normally. This year it's gonna be in a more hybrid form. We're gonna have just all your classes and lectures recorded, and then we're gonna do a Zoom question and answer with your instructor, and then a day on the field. After you maybe outgrow just the one day on the field, there's avalanche education that goes beyond that, like a avalanche level one, which is a three-day course, all of which have a on-snow component. And then from there, people can choose the path that they wanna go down, either a recreationalist, avalanche education path or a professional path and uh, getting time in avalanche train in general. So I understand that Utah Avalanche Center has really put out a lot more online learning this year to help to meet this demand. Uh, you had mentioned knowbeforeyougo.org, uh, kbyg.org. Uh, is that a really good first resource for a never ever to go there and just get the basics down? Yeah, I think it's a great resource. It's really well put together. It was put together by one of our forecasters here. And it, it breaks it down into a really uh, simple, digestible content with videos, interactive 
steps, um, stories, entire program. Uh, it's a really great first stepping stone and you can do it from the comfort of your home, which is great. Do you have any advice for those of us who have friends or know someone who's bought the skis and the poles and the skins, but they're just not sure about education. How do we convince them of the importance of knowing what they're getting into before they set foot in the backcountry? It's a hard topic, um, but it is, it is so important and it's almost a little bit morbid. Um, you, you know, when you go into somebody or go into the backcountry with somebody, if they don't have the proper training they don't have the proper education. They don't know how to use their gear. Um, they're telling all their partners that they don't really care about their life, um, which is a hard way to put it, but it's true. Um, you want to go into the backcountry with somebody who knows how to do a rescue, and, and you want to make sure that you know how to do a rescue because you don't, you're not traveling with people you don't care about. Um, and so to have the education to have the training and to know how, how to use all your gear is is telling all your partners that you, that you care about them and you care that they live. Yeah, it's a, it is a tough discussion, but I think it's one that all of us as skiers really need to have to ensure that everybody that we know that's going back there is looking out not just for themselves but for those around them, those they're they're skiing with. So let's as we as we wind down, Nikki, let's talk a little bit about what gets us out there in the first place and. I don't know if you can remember back to your first powder experience out west where you dropped in and you said, oh, my goodness, this is really special. Do you remember that day? I do remember that day. And I, I just remember kind of the transition on why I initially got into the backcountry in general. Um, it was a new way of exploring. It was just a new way to be outside. It kind of causes you to slow down and look around and experience the mountains in a new way. We've a lot of us have spent a ton of time in the ski resorts and, you know, there's always that new idea of exploration and what if. And I think that's a reason a lot of people are also getting into the backcountry. It's, it's new. It's exciting. And, and do you, are you always looking for that perfect line? And particularly when you're in the backcountry and you have the ability to create your own space in a safe way. What is it that drives you to find that perfect line or that sensation of floating down the mountain? You know, sometimes when we ski for work every day, it's not always powder. So I think just looking for the best line of the day, whether that be a really high snow day where avalanche danger is high. So it might just be some low angle wiggles or maybe the best line to get out of steeping or skiing bulletproof ice as fast as you can. Um, I think just looking for whatever is going to cause me to have the most fun that day on the way down um, is what I look for. So, Nikki, you're a long way from Timber Ridge, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, these are uh, a little bit more than 200 vertical feet here. Well, it's been great to have you on, Nikki Champion from the Utah Avalanche Center. And we're going to wrap up this episode of Last Chair presented by High West with what I call fresh tracks. Some simple questions, no wrong answers, uh, just to kind of learn a little bit more about you. And first of all, a fun outdoor activity that you enjoy outside of skiing or climbing. I really enjoy mountain biking. I think it's pretty similar to backcountry skiing. You got to pick your line and you uh, suffer on the uphill. So that's kind of what you'll find me doing in the summer. Do you, now I know you're outside of Utah generally in the summer, but have you had an opportunity to mountain bike here much? 
I have. I uh, even went this Monday. Uh, we got, you know, we got a little bit lucky with the weather. So I've spent quite a bit of time uh, kind of in the Salt Lake area biking in the fall. And then I've spent some time in the desert as well. Any particular trails you like on the mountain bike? I've really enjoyed almost all the trails I've done, uh, especially in the Moab area. Um, one of my favorite and most memorable trails to date is the whole enchilada down in the Moab area. Yeah. Okay. Let's say that the backcountry isn't safe. You've got an entire Sunday at home. What are you making for a nice midwinter dinner? Ooh, so midwinter, I'm really into soups as, in general in the winter. I think they're really nice to have on hand. You can prep them for your whole week. Um, but if I had a whole day, I might do like a big hot pot of ramen with some roasted veggies, maybe kind of like a creamy sesame broth, and then a bunch of fun, fresh toppings like cilantro and some peppers and carrots and just a nice big bowl, like the size of my face. You know, everybody's coming over for dinner now, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to tell them where I live. Okay. The most spectacular line that you've skied in Utah. So one of my favorite lines uh, would probably just be the full day in general. I really like doing a little cottonwood day to big cottonwood. Um, Pre-COVID, when you could take the bus up to Alta, head up to Superior, drop in, head back up ski room of doom into mineral and then hitchhike out of a uh, big cottonwood. It doesn't hitchhiking doesn't work that well right now, but I think just the full day of going from one cottonwood to the other and skiing some fun lines in between is my favorite route. Do you have a favorite run inbounds at any of the Utah resorts that, that's particularly memorable for you? Oh geez. I don't, think I do yet. <laughs> um, last year, I didn't spend as much time in balance. In general, uh, anything off of high T and Alta has been pretty fun, though. Cool. Uh, your go-to backcountry ski setup? Um, my go-to backcountry ski setup recently has, I like to ski like right around the 100 underfoot. Um, range. So I really, I skied the 99 or the DPS 99 whalers for a long time. Um, this year I'm trying out the Wander, another, both are Utah based companies, the like Wander Intentions or something. I'm going to give a go and I'm excited to try as well. That's in the 110 range. So a little bit fatter. Okay. Another one, favorite Utah craft beer. All right. So this is two. One of them was just released. Uh, it's the Uinto Los Angeles. It's an easy drinking beer, but a cool thing about it is it's got a QR code on it that brings you right to our website, um, which I think is great for people sipping beer when they're on their tailgate, or hopefully you're not sipping beer before you head out in the morning. I'm not sure what people do. Well, I was going to have you clarify that actually. So seriously, <laughs> with this beer, it, you, you do the QR code and it takes you to Utah Avalanche Center? Yes, exactly. So people can submit an observation right after they're done skiing. They can check the forecast uh, or they can check out all of our resources that we have, whether it be education or courses as well. And a note to, and a note to everyone, though, this is for after skiing, right? This is for after skiing. Yeah, don't do this at 9 a.m. Okay. Maybe like we'll get a QR code on a coffee cup or something someday. That would be good. Um, uh, but for now, it's afterwards. And another beer I really liked was from uh, Level Crossing, their Rising Hope IPA. 
That is a good one. I just stumbled on yeah. that the other day. Yeah, it's awesome. It's a charity beer. Um, it's just got some good hints. It's not super hoppy like a lot of IPAs are. And Nikki, my quintessential closing question. Groomers, bumps, glades, or powder? In the backcountry, powder. But in a resort, I still will always love a groomer. You like to put that ski on edge and rip those <laughs> GS turns. It's pretty fun. I don't get to do it that often anymore, but when I do, it feels good. That's the Michigan in you. <laughs> Nikki Champion, thank you for joining us on Last Chair, presented by High West. Uh, it's been fun to talk to you. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Wow, what an adventurous lifestyle for mountain guide and avalanche forecaster Nikki Champion. Big thanks to Nikki for helping keep us safe in the backcountry here in Utah. As we close out this episode of Last Chair, I just want to share another one of my favorite Ski Utah experiences. A happy anniversary to Deer Valley Resorts celebrating 40 seasons, providing a truly first-class experience, one of my favorite mountains here in the state. I love skiing at Deer Valley with a long-standing policy of limiting lift ticket sales every day. Make sure to get your lift tickets in advance at DeerValley.com or call Deer Valley's vacation planners at 1-800-558-3337 to book a lodging package. Yes, things will be a little different this season at every ski resort, but at Deer Valley, its dedication to exceptional service is going to stand out. Just looking up at the mountain today, and it is snow-packed and ready for opening in early December. Thanks to Deer Valley Resort for joining us on Last Chair. A special thanks to my good friends at High West Distillery in Park City's Old Town. I love settling in with a glass of High West's campfire after a long ski day. If you enjoy Last Chair, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. We'll be back with more stories about the people who are the fabric of Ski Utah throughout the season. Let's welcome Pixie and the Partygrass Boys back to take us home. I'm Tom Kelly, your host for Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast presented by High West Distillery. We'll see you on the slopes. Well, you can ski and party if you don't ski and party.